0: Turn to Matthew chapter 5. The uh, Beatitudes that we discussed the last few evenings have brought us to an interesting place in Jesus' teaching. Uh, Tonight we want to talk about the joyful warrior. Uh, We talked a little bit about the word joy the other night. I just want you to take a look here. The word joy comes from the Greek word care. And there's another Greek word, charis. Does anybody know what the word charis is translated into? Grace. They come from the same root. There used to be a motto up at Faith Builders, and you folks took it down. Maybe they took it down after you left. And they should actually have blazoned it on the front wall of the chapel. And it said, joy is the infallible evidence, infallible evidence of God's grace in the life. That was a quote. And I believe that. If you see a person who calls himself a Christian and he is not expressing joy, I can't judge him, he's God's judge, but I will say he's not giving the evidence that you would see if there was grace in his life. Joy is the infallible evidence of God's grace in the life. Now, the Beatitudes do not leave us gazing at the heavens, but at a scarred and warring and troubled and disrupted humanity. Somebody has said, Lord Christ, we must take the torch from thee. We must be true, we must be free, and clean of heart and strong of soul to bear the the glory to its goal. On our engagement announcement, my wife and I had this statement by Amy Carmichael. O Prince of glory, who dost bring thy sons to glory through the cross? Let us not shrink from suffering, reproach, or loss. Now, the first six Beatitudes have brought us to this place. And I've been telling you that the whole point of Jesus' teaching is not to prepare people to go to heaven, although that is the final goal. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I believe in heaven. I believe in hell. Uh, But that's not what Jesus was focused on. He did not say, repent, if you want to go to heaven. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we learned last night that the whole point, looking at the end of chapter 5, is to bring us to perfection. He really wants to perfect us. And I gave you many verses last night, uh, such as uh, this one here where he says, be perfect, Uh, uh, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven, which is perfect. Paul says, I labor to bring bring every man to perfection. Uh, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We have many verses. I told you there are probably 37 references in the New Testament that perfection is the goal. We'll never completely achieve it, but God loves the passion that we put into pursuing uh, being perfect. All right. Uh, So we looked at how you enter the kingdom by destitution in spirit. You come completely to the end of self and you say, God, here I am. Without you, I can do nothing. I'm ready for you to work in my life. That's the entrance to the kingdom where we put Jesus on the cross, uh, Jesus on the throne and self on the cross, and keep self on the cross. In every decision, it's either my way or Jesus' way, and we make that decision in every, uh, we make that decision every time we uh, face that crossroads. We self, we empty ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, people talk about being filled with the Spirit, and I get the impression they talk about getting more of the Spirit. Well, the Spirit is a person. I don't think you get him an arm and a leg at a time. I think you get all of the spirit when you're born again. But the question is, does he get all of you? Can he express himself totally through your mind, through your will, through your emotions, without any hindrance when he does, you're filled with the Spirit. And that sort of comes and goes because self gets in there and we struggle sometimes and the Holy Spirit can't express himself fully like he'd like. And then we deal with that and then we're filled with the Spirit. And so that's how I understand being filled with the Spirit. It depends on how much you have completely eliminated self from a certain area of your life as to whether that area of your life is gonna be filled with the Spirit. And when we get to that place last night, we say we see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. All of self has been basically eliminated, and we can see clearly who God is. So, the last three of these Beatitudes uh, shows a messy world and the work that God wants to do in that world through us. So the first thing that we're going to look at tonight, the, uh, the joyful warrior embraces peacemaking. Now, you have to understand what peacemaking is. (laughs) Some people think peacemaking is just always being nice and always just, well, everybody calm down and let's just all agree, and so they, they think that's peacemaking. Well, a person that does that is a peace lover, but he's not a peacemaker. Peace lovers compromise for the sake of peace. They're afraid to act, and they pile up trouble for the future. Do you hear me? A peacemaker is a person who faces difficulty head on. Listen to this. Jesus made peace how? By the blood of his cross. Did you hear me? The peacemaker is not afraid of struggle. He's not afraid of suffering. He's not afraid of whatever it takes to bring people to peace. And we're not talking about, you know, everybody calming down. We're talking about people who are in harmony with the universe, in harmony with God, in harmony with their fellow men. They're living according to the way God intended for life to work. They are at peace. You know, the Mennonites love this word through the years. Gelassenheit. You know what that word means? I have a German son-in-law. And I said, I can finally ask a native German what Gelassenheit means. And he helped me finally understand this word. Gelassenheit is when you have gotten yourself to the point where self has been put in its place and you are at rest. You're no longer struggling with your selfishness. You're at peace. And that's what we want to see for everybody. We want to see them finally get to the place where they're not fighting the universe anymore. They're not fighting reality anymore. They're living in harmony with the way life was created to be. Self has been renounced. The Bible says the work of righteousness will be peace. It's the work of righteousness that brings peace. It's getting things right that brings peace and assurance forever. God was at, was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, and has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what we're talking about. We are not called to be sons of we are not called the sons of God in these in this list of beatitudes until we have become peacemakers, till we have begun to have an effect on the world around us, to reconcile them to God in the universe and reality, till they come to height. Okay. Now, this is not an easy task. I think of John Woolman, that Quaker preacher, who was distressed that there were some Quakers who still owned slaves. Well, what did John Woolman do? Did he get on a campaign and get up and denounce people and and, uh, uh, harshly uh, condemn people and throw his weight around and act like a bull in a china shop and say this, we've got to stop this or else. Is that what John Woolman did? No. John Woolman owned a dry good business. And he noticed, he noted, he knew that all the dyes that were used for his dry goods were produced by slave labor. And he said, I will not sell anything in this store that is made by slave labor. I will not wear any clothes that are dyed because that dye was made by slave labor. So John Woolman, this humble Quaker, who was expected to appear in black or brown or gray, very modest colors, marches to the pulpit with an undyed wool suit. Here's a man, a Quaker, dressed in white. I mean, this was culture shock. This was a violation of what a Quaker was supposed to be. And he was ridiculed and he was misunderstood. And he had to put up with a lot of misunderstanding. His dry goods store suffered. I don't think he went bankrupt, but his business suffered terribly. He paid a price. But by the time John Woolman was finished with his ministry, there were no slaves in the Quaker church. That's how he made peace with the issue of slavery. He accepted a cost. He was willing to suffer. Or let's take the girl who was working for the as a secretary to a businessman. He came into the office and dictated a letter for her to write to some customer. And she listened to the letter, the dictation, and she said, "I cannot write that letter for you." Well, why not? Because what you're saying is not true about your product. You're not going to write the letter. You're fired. Clear your desk, leave immediately. So she started to clear out her desk, sadly got ready to go home. And he came back into the office and he said, now wait a minute here. Does that mean that you would never lie about my company? I can trust you, to be honest. You would never cheat. You'd never steal any money. Well, yeah, she said, that's what it means. I'm an honest person. Put your stuff back in the desk. We really need people like you for this company. But there for a few moments. She didn't know how that was going to turn out. But she brought that man to an appreciation for what we all need. If we're going to come to terms with reality. I'm trying to make this really practical. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. And if we're going to be peacemakers in this world, we need to get used to the sight of our own blood. Am I making any sense? That's what a peacemaker is. We are not called the sons of God until we have become loving, aggressive peacemakers. But men hate to be disturbed. And they will cause all kinds of trouble as we try to bring them to this standard of selflessness and unity with the universe. Christ did not come to make life easy, but to make men great. Okay, well, number two, the joyful warrior endures persecution. That's what we've been leading up to here. The world is not a friend to grace, we sing in one of our songs. Suffering is required if peacemaking is to become credible and authoritative Adoniram Judson, after unspeakable years of suffering in Burmese prisons, asked the king for permission after he was released to go to a certain city to preach. And the king said, I am willing to let anybody go to that city to preach except for you, not with your scarred hands. People will hear words, but they can't resist scars." And I have a poem that I memorized years ago, a little poem I memorized years ago. He cannot heal who has not suffered much, for sorrow sorrow only understands. They will not come for healing at your touch who have not seen the scars upon your hands. Joseph Tyson, the evangelical dissident in communist Romania, was often summoned before government officers who used every tactic to break his faith in Christ. Once being interrogated, at a certain city, an officer threatened to kill him. Sir replied Tyson, let me explain how this will work. Your supreme weapon is killing, my supreme weapon is dying. You know that my sermons on tape have been spread all over your country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in the supreme victory if you kill me. The officer sent him home. The early Christians faced tremendous persecution in every department of life. Stonemasons who made a living building idol temples were out of work. Tailors who made robes for heathen priests were out of work. They had to make a choice between loyalty to Christ and making a living. And one of them asked, one of the silversmiths who made little silver idols previously before he was converted, said to Tertullian, how will I live? And Tertullian's answer is, must you live? Or the social life? Many families had a, a little prayer and a little libation to an offering at every meal. So you were invited to a family's a place for a meal and you knew that that was gonna happen before the meal. What did you do? They would often say something like this. I invite you to dine with me at the table of our Lord Serapis, who was an idol. God. Even, in a, meal, even a meal in an ordinary home began with a libation to honor the God's. So, you had to cut yourself off from many social relationships. Home life often one member was a Christian and the other one was not. The early Christians lived with that. The penalties which Christians had to suffer were terrible beyond description. All the world knows of the Christians who were flung to the lions or burned at the stake, but these were kindly deaths. Nero wrapped the Christians in pitch and set them alight and used them as living torches to light his gardens. He sewed them in skins of wild animals and sent his hunting dogs upon them to tear them to death. They were tortured on the rack. They were scraped with pincers. Molten lead was poured hissing upon them. Red-hot brass plates were affixed to the tenderest parts of their bodies. Eyes were torn out. Parts of their bodies were cut off and roasted before their eyes. Their hands and feet were burned while cold water was poured over them to lengthen the agony. These things were not pleasant to think about, but these are the things a man had to be prepared for if he took his stand for Christ. A comic once said, many of those people were willing to give of their lives and we are even willing to give of our time. Persecution was an opportunity to show loyalty to Christ. And it was because of this spectacle of these people who had a higher loyalty and were such consummate servants and and, uh, blessing to the society that the Christians won the heart of the Roman Empire within 300 years without lifting a sword. It was amazing. Polycarp. One of the early bishops who was taught by the Apostle John said this when they came to burn him at the stake, or when they had him at the stake. Eighty and six years have I served Christ, and he has done no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? So they brought him to the stake, and he prayed his last prayer. O Lord God Almighty, the Father of thy well-beloved and ever-blessed Son, by whom we've received the knowledge of thee, I thank thee that thou hast graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour. Here was the supreme opportunity for him to demonstrate his loyalty to Christ. And if we are going to be joyful peacemakers, joyful warriors, we're going to have to realize that this is our opportunity to join a procession of the great men of the past. Are you aware that each year there are 160,000 Christians martyred in our world? More Christians were put to death in the 20th century than in all the 19th centuries that preceded it. And I think who knows what's going to happen here in the the years that come. The word persevere, per means through and severe. It means through severe circumstances. That's what the word persevere means, okay? Would you turn to Romans chapter five? My last point is <laughs> here, or the last beatitude is exudes praise. Okay. <clears throat> it embraces peacemaking, it endures persecution, and it praises in the process. Romans chapter 5. I'd like to read a couple of verses here. How Paul viewed this way of life. <clears throat> Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God our Lord Jesus through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Oh, that's wonderful, isn't it? Well, look what he says next. And not only so, we glory in tribulations. <laughs> I'm not gonna ask for a raise of hand, but would your wife say that she sees you glorying in difficulty? In, in tribulations, the people who are close to you. Do they, do they, when, when things really get difficult and you have to suffer for standing for something, do they see you say, well, praise the Lord. I'm so happy for this opportunity. That's what Paul did. Why? Look what he says. We glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation works patience. And by the way, the, the, uh, the word patience means cheerful endurance. If it's not cheerful endurance, it's not biblical patience. All right? So he says, tribulation works patience. You know why? Because when the next tribulation comes, you say, Ben, they're done that, and you have more patience for the next tribulation, and then the next tribulation you have more patience for the next. That's just how it goes. You develop patience. You know, Hudson Taylor, we're talking about him. His logo for the China Inland Mission was, uh, had the Chinese character on the left-hand side for Ebenezer. Anybody know what Ebenezer means? Freeman. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. The Chinese character on the next, on the right-hand side was the Chinese character for Jehovah Jireh. Does anybody know what that means? The Lord will provide. I look at the past and I say, God has always met my need. I see many evidences of His power and work in my life, so I know what's going to happen in the future. Tribulation work with patience. In fact, people on the billboard line often ask me, What is the secret to your strong faith in God? And I say, The secret to my strong faith in God is that I look back over my life and I can review many incidences where the Lord helped me. And that gives me the confidence that he will continue to help. Uh, you know, the Bible often says, remember, we forget. We don't reflect. We should, we should build up a, a huge repertoire of Ebenezers. <laughs> I was in this situation. This is what God did. And here in this situation, I saw God. And here I saw God at work. And here I saw God at work. And I know that in the future, he's going to continue to work. I think Christians should do that. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that tribulation works patience. You build up one Ebenezer after another and your patience just becomes, and, and in fact, you sort of say, this is an adventure. I'm in another tribulation and I know what happened in the past. Look, I'm waiting to see what's going to happen in the future. All right. Tribulation worketh patience. Patience, experience. That's another word for character. And experience, hope. And hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So, so Paul says, out of tribulation, I get patience, I get character, I get hope, and the final result of all that is a greater capacity to love. Okay? Tribulation does a little bit like Gideon's uh, breaking of his lanterns. It caused the light to shine. There's a special glory, they say. And I must admit, I'm talking now out of theory and out of what I read and what I know of other people's experience. And what Peter has to say, would you turn to Peter while I'm talking? First Peter, I want to look at something there in chapter four. But there's a special glory that comes out of tribulation that doesn't come from any other experience. And that's what Peter says. That's what I want you to see. First Peter, chapter four. Chapter 4, verse 13. Well, I'm going to start with verse 12. Beloved, think it it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. Oh my, this this is unusual. No, 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 no. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad with, also with exceeding joy. Now, you're maybe thinking of the future, but know what he's saying is you can expect his glory to be revealed in this, okay? And then you will be exceedingly joyful. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happier are ye for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. That is unique, to people who are suffering because of their faith. There's a glory that comes out of that. I remember Richard Wormbrand. I heard him in person, tortured for Christ, you maybe read his book. He said in those Romanian prisons, he said there was something about what brought persecution brought out of our life, a special presence in our life, a special power in our witness that he said, when you leave those kinds of situations, you do not experience. He says, now my flesh does not want to go back to Romania to that experience but there's something in me that wishes I could experience that glory that I don't experience now that I'm in a free culture. That's what Paul is saying, okay? And, of course, you know Paul says that he wanted to have the fellowship of his suffering. He wanted to know the power of God and and the fellowship of his suffering. He knew the two were connected, all right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, and there was Christ with them. The Christian not only uses persecution, and not only endures persecution, he uses it, as as Paul says, okay? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We know that about Christ. All right, so the Beatitudes begin with self-renunciation, and they end with suffering and a very special joy. Uh, as a result. Would you turn to number uh, 165 in your hymnal? So are we willing to be peacemakers? Not peace lovers, but peacemakers. People are willing to face the clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world head on. And there will be a clash. The two are diametrically opposed. The values are totally the opposite, and the life will be the totally the opposite. And it will clash with the world, like that secretary uh, that I told you about, and like John Woolman. 165, George A. Young was a, was a pastor, a poor pastor, that he and his wife had dreamed of someday, someday having their own little house. And finally, after scrimping and saving all their life, they scraped together enough money to build a modest house for themselves, and they were so happy in their little house for a very short time. They went on a trip together on some ministry, and when they came back, the house had been burned to the ground. It was later determined it was by arson by somebody who hated him for something he had said or done uh, that they did not like. This song is the result of that experience. This is what he wrote. In shady green pastures, so rich and so sweet, God leads his dear children along where the waters cool flow basically where he wants feet. He leads us through those pleasant experiences. Some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. And Al Smith, the musician, visited Mrs. George Young at the end of her life. She was in a poor house. They had no money. At the end, when he died, she went to the poor house. Well, most people would say that's not a very good circumstance, but they said he said he never met a happier woman than Mrs. George Young in that poor house. She just exuded joy. They had learned what we talked about this evening, through difficult experiences, to have joy in the special presence of Christ revealing his kingdom through suffering. Let's just sing um, verse three. I think you know this song, I hope you do. <laughs> No, though sorrows befall us and Satan oppose, God leads his dear children along. Through grace we can conquer, defeat all our foes. God leads his dear children along. Some through the waters, some through the flood. Some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. All right, now back to Matthew chapter 5. I want to move into the next message. The kingdom on display the kingdom on display. Or you could title this showing off. (laughs) Are people supposed to show off? (laughs) The Bible says, ye are a chosen generation, ye are a royal priesthood, ye are a holy nation. There you go, God wants a nation. It's not just individual salvation to get to heaven, it's a nation. A peculiar people, listen to this, that you should show forth the praises You should show off the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We should be showing off. (laughs) Now, the reason we don't like that term is because most people, when they're showing off, they're showing off their self. And that's bad, yes. But we're talking about showing off the kingdom of God. You know, we all have an irrepressible desire to do something significant, to make a difference. I said this the other night to make a mark in life, to have some influence in the world, to leave a legacy. That's a God-given desire. And the only reason why we look negatively at it is because we see so much selfishness in people's pursuit of trying to make a difference and trying to uh, be noticed and all of that. But God wants us to put his glory on display. That's a God-given desire to put God's glory on display, okay? We were made for this, but the devil perverts it through self to make ourselves look important. All right? So we want to talk a little bit about this. Let me read these verses. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. I want you to notice something here. You have to be salt before you can be light. Salt is hidden. Salt is not seen. Salt is not out there on display. The light is. And we have too many people who want to be a light before they let the salt have its effect. They want to be out there in the front. They want to be famous. They want to be a great preacher. They use all kinds of gimmicks to get attention, to draw the crowds, to have some uh, major uh, display. I'm sorry, unless they've let the salt have its work first, that light is just simply a farce and will finally prove itself to be that. Salt is hidden, silent, unseen, and pervasive, and you must be salt before you really will be light. The influence is inward and pervasive before it is outward. Gimmicks won't work. Manipulative techniques won't work. Loud music, drama, tongues, impressive techniques won't work if the salt hasn't done its work. Many want to be light before they're salt. They have an itch for publicity. But what does it mean to be salt? I want to call your attention to something. Salt is a stable element. It cannot lose its saltiness. Well, the Bible says it does. What's it talking about? Well, to say that salt would lose its saltiness is like saying water would lose its wetness. Salt is a stable element and saltiness cannot be diminished. Salt will always be salt. Now listen to me carefully. The only way that it loses its saltiness is if it's mixed with something else. If you mix it with sand or you dilute it with water, or you start mixing something else with it, it loses its saltiness. But salt is salt. The only way to lose its saltiness is if you dilute it, if you mix it with something else. Here is the Bible's call for us to separate ourselves from everything that diminishes our salty tang of the kingdom. All right? So what are the things that dilute the saltiness? I have listed some things. Here are some things that get into this mixture. Individualism. Do your own thing. Exalt self. Don't blend with the group. And I'm going to say something here. That's the the thing I see as the greatest threat to our Anabaptist churches. This idea that we're going to teach the principles and we're going to let everybody express those principles the way they feel God leading them to express them. That sounds so spiritual. That sounds so idealistic. That sounds so real. Then we will have genuine spirituality coming from the heart. but people have misunderstood. As soon as you do that, you have said, we champion individualism. And it has happened over and over again, happened over and over again. Read the Quaker history. They say, we lost it when we said we will teach values and principles and let people make their own applications. When we lost the common practices where we had to participate in Galassianite, we had to lay down self. We had to deny self-expression. We had to deny all those things that want to express itself. We opened a door to individualism. I read the Quaker history. I read the Brethren history, and they all marked that as the point where they lost it. They said as long as we had... Common practices, as long as we had a plain lifestyle, as long as we had certain practices we did together that were an expression of our common values and our common beliefs. And that's what the plain lifestyle was. It was a a way of people doing these things together, doing humility together, doing modesty together, doing uh, galassonite together, doing uh, unity together. I grew up at Chambersburg Mennonite Church, and that's what I heard. We will be much more vital spiritually, if we let, if we preach the principles and get people really on fire for God and then let them express it however they want to express it. Don't be surprised if 30 years, it'll take about 30 years by the way, because it takes about 30 years to spend the capital that plain churches give you when you start talking that way. But after about 30 years, all that you assumed that the group had by having some common practices and not a full expression of individualism, those things will all disappear. The women, the people that said that at Chambersburg Mennonite Church never dreamed the coverings would disappear, cut hair would come in, boys would run off to the military, there'd be divorce, they never dreamed of that. But that's what individualism finally produces. We underestimate the power of selfishness, okay? Golosanheit is the opposite of individualism. It's the ability to get self out of the way and work together as a group in common beliefs, common values, and common practices that express those. I'll just give that for what it's worth. I hear you folks are struggling with it here just like we are in our congregation. And the difference between me and some other people is I lived through this. I I heard this at Chambersburg Mennonite Church 50 years ago. And I wish you could go there now and see what came out. It sounded so spiritual. And the people who talked that way are the ones that were reading all the books and had all the information about spirituality and they were vibrant and they were out there witnessing. And the rest of us seemed like a bunch of poor, dumb yokels that didn't have any clue. Well, go there and look at it now. It all turned into individualism. Individualism, as I see it, is the greatest threat to our churches and the kingdom of God. It's the opposite of the selflessness and the gloss and height that we should come to and be able to work together, submit to God, submit. Did you know that being filled with the Spirit has three evidences? Our tongues people say it's tongues, but I always take them to that verse that says, be filled with the Spirit speaking to yourselves in, and there's where it should be. It should say tongues right there. There's where it should be. Right, Brother Freeman? Be filled with the Spirit speaking to yourself in tongues. But it's not there. It says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What's that mean? That means the joyful warrior. That means the person who's still singing when he's being burned at the stake. That means the person who's still singing in a circumstance where nobody would have a song otherwise. He has evidence there's something supernatural welling up within him, no matter what his circumstances are. That's an evidence of being filled with the Spirit. The second one, by the way, it says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks to God for all things. So it's a thankful spirit. And then the next one, I never heard anybody say is an evidence of being filled with the Spirit. Listen to this. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. That is an evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And there's some people that just can't do that. They are so Spirit-filled that they have to express their own individual spirituality. They cannot submit to anybody else because that would be unspiritual. Am I making sense? <laughs> a thankful heart, a song that can't be quenched, and an ability to bow my spirit and demonstrate the and height. Those are the evidences of being filled with the spirit. By the way, Matthew Henry one time was robbed, and somebody said to Matthew Henry, what do you have to say about your robbery? And he said, I'm thankful. Matthew, you're thankful that you were robbed? Yes, I'm thankful they took my money and not my life. I'm thankful it was me they robbed and not somebody else. I'm thankful that they took it all, but I didn't have much. (laughs) And he He went down through a whole list of things he was thankful for about the experience of being robbed. That's what it means. The Christian is still thankful, no matter what the circumstances is, The circumstances cannot quench his praise. The circumstances cannot make him rebellious and self-willed. He's filled with the spirit. He experiences galassanite. He experiences joy. He experiences gratitude. He experiences a positive attitude in every situation. The individualistic person is self-centered. He acts so spiritual, but just try to challenge uh, something uh, in his life, and you'll find how spiritual he is. Number two, rebellion, lawlessness. We hear that legalism kills spirituality. I want you to turn to an interesting passage. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 4, 24. I want to show you what causes people to cool off spiritually. Matthew 24 Verse 12. And because of iniquity, the love of many shall wax cold. It doesn't say because of legalism. It says because of lawlessness. Jesus says to those who come and say, Lord, 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 he says, depart from me. Listen to this. Depart from me, ye that work lawlessness, iniquity. It's lawlessness that causes people to cool off spiritually. We hear these people say, oh, they have a form of godliness, these plain people, but they deny the power thereof. I want you to turn to that passage. I'd never heard of such a misapplied passage in my life. Would you turn to 2 Timothy, where they're quoting, Is it godly forms of holiness that cause people to have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof? <clears throat> Second Timothy. Verse three, chapter 3, verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, trucebreakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. These are these people that are so super spiritual, but they can't overcome their own carnal lusts. It's not the people who have adopted forms of holiness. It's people who can't, doesn't they have a form of godliness. They're always out there talking about the Lord and how that much they love Jesus and how spiritual they are, but they can't overcome their lusts. They have a form of godliness, and it sounds great, but it's lawless. And I personally, <laughs> I know I'm preaching pretty pretty strong here tonight, but I'm I'm sick and tired of this idea that if we have any kind of common practices to express our beliefs and values in humility and uh, 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 modesty and and height and so on, that then that just kills spirituality. The way to have spirituality is teach principles so people get such a fire inside of themselves that they, they just express such a genuine individualistic spirituality. That is, that is death, folks. I'm sorry. I've seen, I have a brother, son-in-law who came from the Brethren in Christ. And he says the same thing. He says, John, it was the same thing. The Brethren of Christ Church came to the point where they said all of this form that we have is killing us spiritually. Let's get rid of it and let's preach principles and get people on fire for the Lord and then we'll have a genuine spirituality. We'll go to their churches today. Totally acculturated. Divorce and remarriage, everything you wouldn't want. By the way, the world is not a smorgasbord. You don't say, I want this, but I don't want the divorce and remarriage. I want this, but I don't want the rebellious children. I want this, but I don't want the drugs. I want this, but I don't want the military. Wait a minute. The world is a full course meal. And if you want any of it, you will eventually get all of it. Believe me, hear me tonight, please. I'm making a plea to our plain churches. I'm talking about the things that dilute the salt. Individualism which results in lawlessness, finally, and rebellion. Some people mistake their emotional impulses for the moving of the Holy Spirit. They can't tell the difference between their belly and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It's like G.K. Chesterton. How many of you have ever read G.K. Chesterton? He was a very bombastic, self-opinionated person. He visited this country one time, and somebody asked a New York uh, reporter after he left, what did you think of G.K. Chesterton? He said, well, G.K. Chesterton could never differentiate between the rumblings of his belly and the rumblings of the universe. (laughs) Well, that's the way some Christians are. They can't tell the difference between some impulse that comes totally from the flesh and the moving of the Holy Spirit. They think that if they have some something bubbling up, it's the Holy Spirit. Well, anyway, well, I probably have said enough on that. Jesus is about to give the most stringent laws that anybody ever gave to the church. And before that, I want you to notice in chapter, verses 17, we're not going to discuss this. I'd love to have a whole message on it. Verses 17 to 20, he says, if anybody breaks the least of these commands, He shall be called least in the kingdom of God. And by the way, who was the person who was called least in Israel? Was it the murderer? Was it the adulterer? It was the false prophet. I don't have the reference down here. I I, I don't think I do. No, I don't. But you go back to the prophets. It says, uh, the ancient and honorable man, he is the head. The prophet that teaches lies, he is the tail. He's the dregs of society, not the murderer, bad as that is, not the adulterer, as bad as that is, but the prophet who teaches lies. Why? A murderer may kill quite a number of people, and it's that's sad. We're not minimizing that. But a prophet can lead a whole community to hell. And he was considered, and Jesus says it. He says, if any man breaks the least command, That God really wants to have carried out. He's the tail. He's the least. The people who respect law and order. The people who teach disciplined living. The people who teach respect for the law of God. The law of the universe. They are the honorable ones. They're the ones that will be called great. I'm just trying to put this in perspective because this is such a deceptive thing and I hear it all the time and it just grieves me. It just makes me cry because I know what's gonna happen. I know what's gonna, it'll take 30 years for them to spend all their capital and finally see the ugly result. That's the deception of it. Number three, individualism, rebellion, immorality. Immorality. Don't be attracted away from the kingdom of God's values and beliefs by practices that violate those, all right? Don't let the world press you into its mold. And I could talk about a lot of of things here. Golosanheit versus individualism is what we should have. Submission versus rebellion is what we should have. Modesty versus immorality is what we should have. Salt, what does it do? It preserves. Salt is the open enemy of decay and impurity. Where you see salt, things will not rot. It drives back corruption. It challenges the corruption in the world. The world left to itself, self-destructs. The conservatives in our country, for instance, have never understood that if you don't have good morals, you won't have good finances. If a man cannot control his morals, he also cannot control his spending, usually. And so you have conservative talk show hosts that sound great, until you realize they're divorced and remarried or they're messing around or they're appearing on their show immodestly and they think somehow they can promote conservative values whenever they basically have not learned to control their morals and they don't understand that this country will finally spend itself to death because they're promoting immoral behavior in their own personal lives and they can't control themselves in any area of life. Am I making any sense? And we are here to drive back All of this, corruption. When the colonists came to this country, they never settled anywhere till they were sure they had a good salt supply. You cannot live without salt. You can do without your microwaves and you can do without your cell phones and you can even do without your flush toilets and hot hot running water and your computers and your cars and your automatic washers, but you cannot do without salt. You have to have it to live. Men who check evil are the preservation of society. Nations are made safe, not by armies, not by military resources, but by people who have a salty character that help to preserve the nation. Israel had one man who was the whole army of Israel. His name was Elijah. And when he went up to heaven, Elisha said, oh, my father, my father, the horsemen of Israel and the chariots thereof, there it goes. (laughs) There goes the army of of Israel. One man. An old man tramping around through Israel, causing trouble with people like Ahab. He He was the nation's defense. Churches are made safe, not by authoritarian organization, but by salty character. And I'm calling you tonight for salty character. Selfishness. You weren't here, Brother Freeman. I've told them if they don't remember anything else I said in these meetings to remember that the practical definition for sin is selfishness. That's what it is. We need people who inspire by their character goodness. People who keep diluting character with the world's corruption are destroying. Ten good men would have saved Sodom, just ten men. All they needed was ten ten good men, and the whole city would have been saved. France tossed out its salt in the 1700s, and they laughed about it. They laughed about their immorality. They said, after us comes the deluge, or the flood. And it came in 1789, and it was a flood of blood and horrible massacre. And then they got Napoleon. England traveled to the same brink of bloodshed. And all of history says that they were saved, not by their army. They were saved by a a young man who went to Aldersgate Street and had his heart strangely warmed and started out over the countryside preaching to people. And enough people got converted, factory owners who started to treat their people right, Uh, in the mines, people who, who were cruel, and brutal with their animals, began to respond differently even to the animals in the mines that the animals didn't hardly even know how to do their work, they were used to being beaten. And uh, the Wesleys, history, you read the history, the historians, the secular historians will tell you that the Wesleys saved England from the same bloody revolution that France had because you had this discrepancy between the rich and the poor, the factory owners and the workers, and there was just about to be the same rebellion they had in France against the bourgeoisie. And it was averted by the preaching of the Wesleys. We must choose to be salt or to be a foolish mixture, where it says uh, that word uh, there's a word there that means foolish, and I can't I can't lay my eyes on it right now. But anyway. Isabel Kuhn opens her book by searching with this poetic portion by John Oxenham. To every man there openeth a way and ways and a way. And the high soul climbs the highway and the low soul gropes the low. And between on the misty flats, the rest drift to and fro. But to every man there openeth a highway and a low. And every man decided the way that he shall go. Salt helps those people in the misty flats to make their decision." It helps to stop the corruption. Salt also seasons. It makes life interesting. It is absolutely wrong that Christians are boring people. If you're a boring person, I'm not sure you're a Christian because Christianity is not boring. All right? Christianity does not take the flavor out of life. It puts flavor into life. It gives life its zest. It gives life its reality. The world is tasteless, bored, and insipid. I mean, Joe Rudolph lived down there at Gatlinburg, and he told me that they had to constantly invent something that was just a little bit more exciting than the last thing. He said, each thing they invent lasts about two years, and then they've got to come up with something even more exciting. So they had all kinds of interesting stuff there, a chair you could sit in that when they released it, it blew and did all kinds of crazy stuff The Joe described to me one time and he said they have to keep coming up with more and more excitement because you call it the law of diminishing returns the flesh has to have more and more excitement the Christian doesn't approach it that way he doesn't say now I've got to think of the next exotic restaurant let's see where, where can I get food that's more exotic than what I ate before the Christian says I won't eat for three days did you ever go on a fast Potatoes without any butter or salt after three days of fasting tastes absolutely fabulous. Mm -hmm. The world is bored. They've run everything to its extreme and they're bored. So try the next crazy thing. Try the next dumb thing. Let's be homosexuals. Maybe that'll give it to us. Whatever. Rebecca Black wrote a song years ago. It had 79 million viewers in several weeks. And here is the poem. It's Friday, Friday, gotta get down to Friday. This was sung. Everybody's looking forward to the weekend, weekend. Friday, Friday, getting down to Friday. Everybody's looking forward to the weekend. Partying, partying, yeah, partying, partying, yeah. Fun, 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 looking forward to the weekend. 7.45, we're driving on the highway, cruising so fast, I want time to fly, fun, fun, think about fun. You know what it is, I got this, you got this, my friend is by my right. Hey, I got this, you got this, now you know it. You talk about bored. Got to get down to Friday. Got to get to the weekend. (laughs) Their life is pointless. It has no substance. It has no reality to it. What about the other days of the week? The world's activities leave everybody jaded. I said it's the law of diminishing returns. The Christian character salts life with genuine love, genuine hope, genuine trust. Genuine freedom, genuine beauty. Over a century ago, I must, what time is this? we'll, We'll get finished here soon. Over a century ago, E. Stanley Jones gave this observation. He wrote, oh, hell, cries many a modern youth and thinks he's swearing. When all he's doing is unconsciously revealing the fact that he has nothing but expended his resources within and that he's living on the hell of insufferable, inane meaninglessness. In giving rein to passion, he grasps at the lurid sunset and finds that he has grasped the dark. He has gained the kingdom of rot. In the New Testament, the man with the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground. The end of his life's work was an empty hole. Many are going off and doing nothing more than digging holes in the ground. The end is emptiness, insipidity, tastelessness, and futility. Okay, we're assuming that you have committed yourself to be salt. You say, I don't want the mixture. It's not going to be individualism. It's not going to be rebellion. It's going to be gloss height. It's going to be humility. It's going to be, did I say not going to be humility? No, it's not going to be self expression. It's not going to be selfishness. I'm going to deal with self. Okay? Then you're ready to be light. It doesn't say you might be light, but it says you are light. You are the light of the world. It's what Jesus claimed to be. He said, I am the light of the world. Light helps people to see reality. Did you know that the prophets were originally called seers? They were people who could see what nobody else could see. And by the way, I need to talk a little bit about the prophets. Why could they see so much better than other people? Well, if you read them... People have the idea that the prophets were always telling about the future. Well, they did. They talked some about the future, but very little. Does anybody know what they spent most of their time talking about? <laughs> History. They were great historians. If you go to the library, if you go to the uh, uh, archives in Washington, D.C., along one of the pathways, there's a, there's a plaque It's a quote from Shakespeare from The Tempest. It says, the past is prologue. A prologue is a glimpse for the future, it's a beginning of the future. The past is prologue. And those prophets, you see, if if you live only in the present, which is so and, and I get so frustrated of people who don't know history, I say to the stuff that goes on in churches, why don't they look at the history? There were people in the past who did exactly what they say they're going to do and they can actually see what happened. And then they can decide if that was wise. But they do it over and over and over and over and over and over again with the same result. Because if you live only in the present, you have no direction. You can go anywhere from where you are. You can go in any direction you want to go. It makes no difference. But... If you can establish a point in the past, you can with some certainty chart a course for the future. The prophets were great historians. They said, look, folks, this is what people did in the past. Look what happened. This is what people did in the past. Look what happened. This is what people did in the past. Look what happened. And that's my appeal to you tonight. Look what people have done in the past and see what happened and then make a wise decision for the future. <clears throat> we are the light of the world. And I think we ha- if we're really living the way we should, we have a-, a perspective of reality that the world does not have. They're looking only at the present. In fact, they don't teach history much anymore in, ch- in school. And if they do teach history, they teach a revisionist history. They make it say what they want it to say. They don't really look honestly at what happened. Here's an interesting item about a conscientious German pastor who would not bow to Hitler. And for that reason, he was confined to a concentration camp. It is reported that the concentration camp commander at Schausenhausen, where Martin Niemöller was being held, is determined to make an atheist of this famous prisoner. And to this end, he placed a common communist atheist in the cell next to him with permission for them to talk. He also arranged for these two men to take their daily half-hour walk at the same time in the same yard. He wanted this atheist to talk this Martin Niemöller out of being a Christian. The atheist was a very intellectual person, skilled in argument. He had been promised all sorts of favors if he could make Niemöller lose his faith. Each prisoner enjoyed presenting his own viewpoint. This lasted four days, And on the fifth day, the atheist begged Niemöller to lend him his Bible, a book that that had now assumed new meaning to him. The very same day, the atheist was moved to another cell. He had come to see the light. The riddle of the universe will never be solved by microscopes and telescopes, but by men living out the great and beautiful order of God's kingdom. We need men who will stand up and take the lead, many are willing to follow. I came to Anchor Christian School, and there were things in that school that needed to be upgraded. The dress standard and, and uh, the attendance standard, various things, had dropped really to a low point. And I had something to my advantage in that school, and I've always given these boys credit. There was a Waito family who sent three boys to my high school. They were the oldest boys in the high school, and all the young boys looked up to them. And they supported the changes we wanted to make, and the whole school followed them. And I've gone back to them many times and said, are you aware of the fact we'd have never brought stand Anchor to the standard we had if it wouldn't have been for you three boys? They're an example of what salt can do. They're an example of what light can do. The word for goodness, they say, has two meanings. The one means good in quality, which we all know. The other means winsome in its attractiveness. That's what God is calling us to. A worried world sees irresistible serenity. A depressed world sees joy. Like the moon, they can gaze on the glory of God. They can't see it directly, but they can see it in our lives as it's reflected. We are called to glorify God, to, to demonstrate the beauty of his character. Not a theatrical goodness, but a real goodness that draws people's attention to the beauty of reality. When the lines between the church and the world fade, both the church and the world lose. The world, the church loses its, I'm sorry, the world loses its salt and the church loses its purpose. The choice is already made. If we have chosen the king, life raised naturally raises its light. A life life higher than its surroundings cannot be hid. The life is the light. It is the nature of light to shine, of salt to permeate, of Christians to share. When the Christian does not share his spiritual life with others, he not only denies his Lord, he denies his own life. It shineth to all that are in the house. Religion is to be as free as the light. I conclude with a story and then we'll conclude with a song. I have a friend, J. Luke Martin, up in Athens, Wisconsin. One day, an 80 some year old Lutheran minister came to him and said, I want you to come and preach a sermon in my church on non-resistance. Well, Luke had never met this man. He didn't know who he was. But he went to that church and preached the sermon on non-resistance. And then after the sermon, he said to the 80 year old pastor, you don't know me, I don't know you. How did I get invited to your church to preach this sermon? Well, I said, we have to go way back in my life to when I was a 14-year-old. My family visited Lancaster County. And in our visit, my mother decided she wanted to buy a couple pounds of green beans. So she stopped at one of the produce stands. And this very plain woman measured out two pounds of beans. And after she had finally weighed them and had the weight that they wanted, She reached over and grabbed a huge handful of beans extra and put them in the top of the bag and with the most irresistible smile you could have ever hoped to see, said, this is the part of my job that I like the best. And he said, I was a little 14-year-old and I looked at that and I said, someday I'm going to find out what that's all about. So I went to the phone book and I looked up Mennonite and I invited you to come so I could understand What that smile was about and that unusual expression of generosity that's what we are called to be would you turn in the hymnal to 616. but i'm i'm going to conclude with a plea let's beware of the mixture that's how the salt loses its savor 616. Philip Bliss one night heard D.L. Moody talk about an incident that happened in Cleveland, Ohio. Now, you must notice this song was written in 1871. It's before electricity. And they tell me that the harbor in Cleveland is a treacherous harbor. There's a channel, but there are rocks all along the way through that channel. And there are lights that light where that channel is. Well, on this particular night... They weren't electric lights and there must have been a storm and all the lights were blown out and the channel was dark. The lighthouse light was burning and the ship came to the channel through the lighthouse and got to the channel and there were no lights to light that treacherous channel. This is a, a true story, they say. And so the captain said to the first mate, can we make it? He says, we have to. So they started down that channel and they wrecked and many lives were lost. And Philip Bliss went back to his residence and wrote this song. Let the lower lights be burning. Christ will lead people to the channel. He will bring people to himself, but he needs people like you and me to show the nuts and bolts of how to live this out without wrecking their lives on the rocks of this world's values and beliefs. Let the lower lights be burning. It's the burden of my message tonight, so let's sing this. Uh, after we have prayer father we thank you tonight that you have made it possible for us to be salt you've made it possible for us to deal with the mixture you wouldn't have called us to do it because you never ask us to do things that can't be done and i pray lord that you would make this congregation sensitive to selfishness the deception of self-expression and all the things lord that lead people to what they think is going to be a super spirituality but ends up being the very opposite. Oh God, deliver this congregation from what has taken so many congregations into the world. And I pray, Lord, that they would then, having taken the salt into their lives, pure salt without mixture, they would then be a light. They would be able to light the channel and lead many people to the same glorious uh, pleasures of your kingdom that you have to offer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.